0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast.
1: Your journey. Your journey. Your, Your journey. journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Shimupakurl, Chief of Programs and Outreach at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us for today's special event the annual Lucille Clifton Celebration, Today We Are Possible, featuring Natasha Trethewey. We are thrilled to have so many writers and supporters of literature in the audience. Our annual free poetry contest with Little Patuxent Review is now open for Maryland residents aged 18 and older. The deadline is March 1st, 2021. The winning poem will be published in the Little Patuxent Review and celebrated at a public reading. we love to read your writing. Please submit or share with a creative friend some of our virtual logistics. If you're watching in Zoom, please click the chat bubble on your screen to post questions for the speakers. If you're watching in Facebook, please post in the comments. My colleague will post a survey near the end of the program. Your feedback helps us serve you. Today, we are honoring Lucille Clifton's legacy with the Clifton House on the anniversary of her passing. Nastasha Trethewey will read her work and speak with Ms. Clifton, and then she will be in conversation with Sydney Clifton. Before the public Q and A, there's definitely magic in the air. Natasha Trathaway served two terms. I'm so sorry. Served two terms as a 19th Poet Laureate of the United States, 2012 to 2014. She is the author of five collections of poetry. She is also the author of the memoir *Memorial Drive*. Her book of nonfiction, Beyond Katrina, A Meditation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, appeared in 2010. She is a recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, the Luthenheim Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Bunting Fellowship Program of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. At Northwestern University, she is a Board of Trustees Professor of English in the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences. In 2012, she was named Poet Laureate of the State of Mississippi, and in 2013, she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Emmy-nominated Sydney Clifton has over 20 years of experience as an executive producer, casting director, voice director, director and creative development executive in animated and live action content across multiple platforms. She is currently serving as executive producer at Deluxe Animation Studios, Series producer at the Jim Henson Company and as a senior consultant with Black Women Animate. Sydney's passion for de- I'm sorry. Sydney's passion for developing and supporting the underserved community of writers, artists, and storytellers, and creators was the catalyst for her launching the Clifton House and Writers and Artists Workshop and Retreat Space, centered at her childhood home in Baltimore, Maryland, the home that she shared with her five siblings and parents. Educator, activist Fred J. Clifton, and National Book Award winning poet and author Lucille Clifton. The Clifton House has incredible support by many, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation's African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. We cannot wait to see what is to come as Sydney Clifton lives the words her mother would say to her always leave a place better than how you found it. Please give a warm Virtual welcome to Nastasha Trethaway and Sydney Clifton.
2: Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. So good to see you, Tracy, um, Sydney, all of you. Um, I'm just already feeling like I'm going to start weeping, so I'm just going to try <laughs> to dive in without doing that. Um, on this anniversary of her passing, I am humbled to be with you to remember Lucille Clifton to honor her memory and celebrate her legacy. I'm honored too because, and a little afraid because I've been asked to read some of her poems along with some of my own. And I'd like to place them in conversation so you might see her profound and abiding influence, the way that her poems felt to me like an open and generous invitation, a call to which I could respond because her words had empowered me to do so. It makes sense to start with this poem of hers. Study the masters. Like my aunt Timmy, it was her iron or one like hers that smoothed the sheets the master poet slept on. Home or hotel, what matters is he lay himself down on her handiwork and dreamed. She dreamed too words some Cherokee some Maasai and some huge and particular as hope. If you had heard her chanting as she ironed you would understand form and line and discipline and order and America. This poem taught me to study not only the master poet Lucille Clifton but also to regard the domestic work of my maternal grandmother as a masterclass. My first collection was called Domestic Work and in the title sequence of poems, I write about the various jobs my grandmother, who was born in Mississippi in 1916, held over the course of her life from domestic worker to elevator operator, hairdresser, mother and homemaker to drapery seamstress, all of it about hope and the dignity of work. This is Domestic Work, 1937. All week she's cleaned someone else's house, stared down her own face in the shine of copper bottom pots, polished wood, toilets she'd pull the lid to, that look saying, let's make a change, girl. But Sunday mornings are hers, church clothes starched and hanging, a record spinning on the console, the whole house dancing. She raises the shades, washes the rooms in light, buckets of water, octagon soap. Cleanliness is next to godliness, windows and doors flung wide, curtains two-stepping forward and back, neck bones bumping in the pot, a choir of clothes clapping on the line. Nearer my God to thee. She beats time on the rugs, blows dust from the broom like dandelion spores, each one a wish for something better. And this is Drapery Factory, Gulfport, Mississippi, 1956. She made the trip daily, though later she would not remember how far to tell the grandchildren better that way she could keep those miles a secret and her black face and black hands and the pink bottoms of her black feet a minor inconvenience she does remember the men she worked for and that often she sat side by side with white women all of them bent over pushing into the hum of the machines, their right calves tensed against the pedals. Her lips tightened speaking of quitting time when the colored women filed out slowly to have their purses checked, the insides laid open and exposed by the boss's hand. But then she laughs when she recalls the soiled cotex she saved. Stuffed into a bag in her purse, an Adam's look on one white man's face, his hand deep in knowledge. The first poem of Lucille Clifton's that I ever read 30 years ago was this one. Cutting Greens. Curling them around, I hold their bodies in obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kinship. Collards and kale strain against each strange other, away from my kiss making hand and the iron bedpot. The pot is black, the cutting board is black, my hand and just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife and the kitchen twists dark on its spine and I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. That poem did teach me about the bond of live things and the figurative possibilities inherent in looking at the natural world. And when combined with this next one, a way to call back an image of my long dead mother. This is Lucille Clifton's, O oh Antic God. O oh, Antic God, return to me, my mother in her thirties, leaned across the front porch, the huge pillow of her breast pressing against the rail, summoning me in for bed. I am almost the dead woman's age times two. I can barely recall her song, the scent of her hands. Though her wild hair scratches my dreams at night, return to me, O oh Lord, of then and now, my mother's calling, her young voice humming my name. Well, I didn't know that was happening, gonna happen. Um, <laughs> Sydney and I mentioned how um, we both have our mother's pictures behind us. Mm-hmm. And so you can see over my shoulder here, my mother. And um, man, when I, when I got to that, leaned across the front porch, I thought about that, my mother leaning on the mm-hmm. railing behind me and well, that's what poetry does. But that's what I mean when I'm trying to say that invitation um, in the poems of Lucille Clifton. To answer back in our own. So I want to read this poem of mine. Uh, It's called Lyman. All day I've listened to the industry of a single woodpecker wearing the catalpa tree just outside my window. Hard at his task, his body is a hinge a door knocker to the cluttered house of memory in which I can almost see my mother's face. She is there again beyond the tree, its slender pods and heart-shaped leaves hanging wet sheets on the line, each one a thin white screen between us. So insistent is this woodpecker, I'm sure he must be looking for something else, not simply the beetles and grubs inside, but some other gift the tree might hold. All day he's been at work, tireless, making the green hearts flutter. Of course, looking at the natural world is fraught with other underlying meanings. My father, who was also a poet, was my white parent. He was from rural Nova Scotia and many of his poems dealt with the natural world. He used to point out trees to me when I was a child, teaching me their names. And when I first started writing poems, he kept telling me to write a poem about nature. But I always felt that my relationship to nature initiated in my grandmother's yard in Mississippi, was different from his, and so I did not know how to respond. Then I read this poem by Lucille Clifton. Surely I am able to write poems. Surely I am able to write poems celebrating grass and how blue in the sky can flow green or red and the waters lean against the Chesapeake shore like a familiar, poems about nature and landscape, surely. But whenever I begin, the trees wave their knotted branches and why is there under that poem always an other poem? I understood then that the way I saw nature was often filtered. Palimpsest of other images laid across my vision. My grandmother's yard seemed vast to me as a child. I could trap crawfish in the ditch that bordered the yard, separating it from her driveway, which was made of grass and crushed oyster shells. Across the street was the Mount Olive Baptist Church. The church didn't have its own driveway, so my grandmother and I, so my grandmother let the deacons park the church bus on hers. This was in the mid-sixties, and my parents and I were living there with my grandmother for a short time. At the same time, the church had been hosting a voter registration drive to get disenfranchised Black voters registered. Because of that, we never knew if the act of domestic terrorism was directed at us, the interracial family living in the house, or at the church. This is Incident. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year. I'm going to read two more about um, that time period. This next poem of mine has um, an epigraph from Justice Hugo Black that reads, no right is more precious in a free country than that of having a voice in the election of those who make the laws under which as good citizens, we must live. Other rights, even the most basic are illusory if the right to vote is undermined. Quotidian. Sometimes she wrote about the weather how hot it was, or yet another lightning storm, gone as quick as it came. In the catalog of her days, a dress she was sewing, car trouble, payday, laced with declarations of love to the man who would become my father. Her body bright with desire, a threshold I would soon cross into being. Two years before loving will make their love legal. My mother writes about marrying despite an unjust law. And because it is 1965, Mississippi in turmoil, she writes about a cross burned at the church next door, interracial outings at the beach, and being followed by police. All of it side by side in her letters, tidy script. Reading them, I can't help think how ordinary it seems. Injustice, mundane as a trip to the store for bread. And I know this is about what has always existed side by side in this country. That summer, my grandmother brought the movement home. It tells the story in pictures, and it is beautiful, my mother wrote adding, I think you know the way I am using the word. On the cover, a black protester caught in a cop's chokehold, his mouth open to shout or gasp for air. Inside, pictures I could not bear to look at as a child, a man tied to a scaffold, his body burned blacker the fire still smoldering beneath him. Two boys hanged from a tree above the smiling white faces of the revelers, turned back toward the camera, a young couple holding hands, ordinary as any night out on a date. Now I think of my mother in love and writing love letters, cataloging her days, those terrible, beautiful pictures on the table next to the crocheted lace doily and crystal bowl my grandmother kept for candy butterscotch in cellophane wrappers bright and shiny as gold it is july 20th 1965 two months before my parents will break the law to be married and my mother who's just turned 21 signs off her rights basic as any other citizens. have to run, she wrote. Got to get downtown, to register, to vote. And this is miscegenation. In 1965, my parents broke two laws of Mississippi They went to Ohio to marry, returned to Mississippi. They crossed the river into Cincinnati, a city whose name begins with a sound like sin, the sound of wrong, miss in Mississippi. A year later, they moved to Canada, followed a route the same as slaves, the train slicing the white glaze of winter, leaving Mississippi. Faulkner's Joe Christmas was born in winter like Jesus, given his name for the day he was left at the orphanage, his race unknown in Mississippi. My father was reading War and Peace when he gave me my name. I was born near Easter 1966 in Mississippi. When I turned 33, my father said, it's your Jesus year. You're the same age he was when he died. It was spring, the hills green in Mississippi. I know more than Joe Christmas did. Natasha is a Russian name, though I'm not. It means Christmas child, even in Mississippi. When I started work on my book, Native Guard, I cut out a poem of Lucille Clifton's and glued it to the inside of my notebook to remind me what I was trying to do. It's a very short poem, and I carry it around in my head as well. But when I was writing that book, I needed to see the words each day to hear the empowerment in them. This is why some people be mad at me sometimes. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. That poem kept me going um, as I was writing to try to contend with the historical erasures and national amnesia about the Civil War, in particular, the participation of nearly 200,000 African-American soldiers to whom very few monuments, north or south, have been erected. Now, Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote that poetry is the mirror that makes beautiful that which is distorted. Nowhere more true than in this difficult poem by Lucille Clifton. Jasper, Texas 1998 for Jay Bird. I am a man's head hunched in the road I was chosen to speak by the members of my body. The arm, as it pulled away, pointed toward me. The hand opened once and was gone. Why and why and why should I call a white man brother? Who is the human in this place? The thing that is dragged or the dragger? What does my daughter say? The sun is a blister overhead. If I were alive, I could not bear it. The townsfolk sing, We shall overcome, while hope bleeds slowly from my mouth into the dirt that covers us all. I am done with this dust. I am done. I've long been interested in examining the disease of white supremacy and its ongoing manifestations. And so when I was working on my book Thrall, I was looking at representations of difference and hierarchy across time and space that preceded even the enlightenment during which philosophers first began to codify ideas of racial difference and hierarchy. One day I was in my campus office and I pulled a book down from my shelf called Panorama of the Renaissance. There was a chapter in it called Race in the Renaissance. And the first image I saw was a painting of a white man on a bed who had just been given a leg taken from a black man who lay on the floor. It was one of the many miracle of the black leg images from literature and religious art, paintings and carvings, altarpieces in several countries and across a few centuries, beginning in the 12th century. Always with a black donor, and a white recipient. As I walked out of my office, I had a lot of questions swirling around in my head. Why did this myth of the miracle transplant emerge? How did this man come to give his leg? What can these images tell us about our current moment, about notions of superiority and its conjoined twin, the notion of inferiority, which is the bedrock of contemporary ideas about whose lives matter and whose lives are repeatedly shown to matter less rather than just as much. This is Miracle of the Black Leg. Always the dark body hewn asunder. Always one man is healed, his sick limb replaced placed in the other man's grave, the white leg buried beside the corpse or attached as if it were always there. If not for the dark appendage, you might miss the story beneath this story, what remains each time the myth changes, how in one version the doctors harvest the leg from a man four days dead in his tomb at the church of a martyr or in another, desecrate a body fresh in the graveyard at St. Peter in chains. There was buried, just today, an Ethiopian. Even now, it stays with us. When we mean to uncover the truth, we dig, say unearth. Emblematic in paint, a signifier of the body's lacuna, the black leg is at once a grafted narrative, a redacted line of text, and in this scene, a dark stocking pulled above the knee. Here, the patient is sleeping, his head at rest in his hand. Beatific, he looks as if he'll wake from a dream. On the floor, beside the bed, a dead moor hands crossed at the groin the swapped limb white and rotting fused in place and in the corner a question poised as if to speak the syntax of sloughing a snakes curved form it emerges from the mouth of a boy like a tongue slippery and rooted in the body as knowledge. For centuries, this is how the myth repeats. The miracle, in words or wood or paint, is a record of thought. See how the story changes. In one painting, the Ethiop is merely a body, featureless in a coffin, so black he has no face. In another, the patient at the top of the frame seems to writhe in pain, the black leg grafted to his thigh. Below him, a mirror of suffering, the blackamoor, his body a fragment, arched across the doctor's lap as if dying from his wound. If not imminence, the soul's bright anchor, blood passed from one to the other, what knowledge haunts each body, what history, what phantom ache, one man always low, in a grave or on the ground, the other. Up high, closer to heaven, one man always diseased, the other a body in service, plundered. Both men are alive in Violdo's carving. In twinned relief, they hold the same posture, the same pained face, each man reaching to touch his left leg. The black man on the floor holds his stump. Above him, the doctor restrains the patient's arm as if to prevent him touching the dark amendment of flesh. How not to see it? The men bound one to the other, symbiotic, one man rendered expendable, the other worthy of this sacrifice. Inversion after version, even when the Ethiopian isn't there, the leg is a stand-in, a black modifier against the white body, a piece cut off as in the origin of the word, comma, sejura in a story that's still being written. I'm gonna close with just a couple more poems. This poem of Lucille Clifton's has felt like an anthem to me. Articulating the truth of so many lives, including mine. Won't you celebrate with me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. The last poem in my most recent book is also a kind of treatise. It's called Articulation and it's after Miguel Cabrera's portrait of Saint Gertrude, 1763. Articulation. In the legend, Saint Gertrude is called to write after seeing in a vision, the sacred heart of Christ. Cabrera paints her among the instruments of her faith, quill inkwell an open book rings on her fingers like christ's many wounds the heart emblazoned on her chest the holy infant nestled there as if sunk deep in a wound against the dark backdrop her face is a wafer of light how not to see in the saint's image my mother's last portrait the dark backdrop her dress black as a habit, the bright edge of her afro wringing her face with light. And how not to recall her many wounds, ring finger shattered, her ex-husband's bullet finding her temple, lodging where her last thought lodged. Three weeks gone, my mother came to me in a dream, her body Whole again, but for one perfect wound, the singular articulation of all of them, a whole center of her forehead, the size of a wafer, light pouring from it. How then could I not answer her life with mine, she who saved me with hers? And how could I not? Bathed in the light of her wound, find my calling there. And finally, this last poem by Lucille Clifton, that her voice may continue to resound. Blessing the boats. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love your back. May you open your eyes to water, water waving forever. And may you, in your innocence, sail through this to that. Thank you. goodness. (laughs)
0: goodness. <laughs> Natasha, you are extraordinary. My goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Superman. Oh, my goodness. Um, hard to follow that with conversation. <laughs> uh, but I would like to uh, talk something about I re-listened to Memorial Drive. Mm -hmm. I I read the book, but I wanted to hear it in your voice. Mm -hmm. And I recognize a very stark similarity between yourself, an incident from your life, and one from my mother's. And uh, my mother spoke about this incident where she was a small child. Uh, at a Christmas pageant in her church. She was on stage about to give her, uh, her recitation. She forgot the words and she was in a panic on the stage. And her mother who did not walk in front of people who was sort of very shy and reticent and kept to herself walked up to the stage, took her hand and announced to the church that she does not have to do anything she doesn't want to do. That proclamation and that permission Reminded me so much of the story you tell of your mother making a similar proclamation. Can you talk to us about that, that incident, but also what that kind of incantation did for you as Mm -hmm. a young, as a young woman?
2: Yes. So, um, the incident that um, you're asking about took place, um, when I was in my early teens um, and, uh, sitting around the dinner table at night and because, um, my step, my then stepfather, uh, was, uh, abusive and often jealous of my relationship with my mother. Um, I tended not to tell her things I was excited about until we were alone, but I came home from school so excited because I was starting to imagine that I was going to be a writer Um, I had uh, just joined the literary society and I was on the newspaper staff and I had written a story and and I'm excitedly telling my mother all of this at the table. And then I blurt out, I'm going to be a writer. And um, he sort of barely looked up from his plate and said, you're not going to do any of that. Mm. And my mother um, who could bear many things on her own, could not bear, I think, to see him try to um, shatter any dream that I had. And so I, I saw how her her fist kind of tightened around the fork. And she said, through clenched teeth, um, she will do whatever she wants. And I remember thinking, She's going to get beaten tonight for that. Mm, mm. But she had to do it in order to protect me. And I think, um, you know, I sort of closed that chapter by saying that um, I sort of hear in my own voice the kind of restraint of hers, but also that fierce love and determination.
1: Yes,
0: absolutely. Um... Similarly, can and I understand that my volume was low. Can you hear me now? Is it? I hope it's better now. Um, it reminds me of a poem of my mother's when uh she wrote after remembering witnessing her mother uh burning poems that she had written. Uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother, wrote poems uh, when my mother was a child. My grandfather, her husband. Uh, decided that no wife of his was going to be a poet. And so my grandmother burned her poems in the uh, furnace and never wrote again. And this is uh, that poem called Fury for Mama. Remember this. She is standing by the furnace. The coals glisten like rubies. Her hand is crying. Her hand is clutching a sheaf of papers poems. She gives them up. They burn jewels into jewels. Her eyes are animals. Each hank of her hair is a serpent's obedient wife. She will never recover. Remember, there is nothing you will not bear for this woman's sake. Um, So the rest of this is going to be very emotional. Mom (laughs) Be fine with it so just everyone everyone to understand this is, this is the way it's going to be um, so because we are daughters of extraordinary women and men whose lives were complicated and beautiful and painful and sometimes devastating but they still were capable of moments of joy and i think that we both have learned how to experience that as well and to tap into that capacity can you talk about how you connect to joy and what it does for you and, and how it sustains you?
2: Well, you know, um, when I was working on that book um, I had to, I had to think about two things that seem, I think to some people at odds, how can you, have survived something like this and still find such joy. Mm. Um, And uh, I had a friend who asked me this question. um, What going forward do you want to um, bury? And what do you want to plant? Mm. And I had been thinking about um, how several years ago, I I went on a trip to South Korea and I met some poets there who had been reading um, my book, Native Guard, and one of them said to me that um, there's a saying in in South Korea that um, one does not bury the mother's body in the ground, but in the chest, or, and he pointed at me like you, you carry her corpse on your back. And so I realized that the grief that I carry is visible and it is as though I carry a corpse on my back. But it's something I don't want to put down because it also makes me who I am. But then I realized that I may be carrying that unburied corpse on my back, but that I have planted the seed of my living mother in my heart. And that grows. Um, And so they exist simultaneously. And I frequently, you know, quote Rumi, um, the wound is the place where the light enters you. A wound like this makes me filled with light. And it also allows me joy so that I can simultaneously think about and bear witness to my mother's death, but also remember her dancing.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, oh my goodness. Um, I wanted to read a, a, just the end of my mother's uh, memoir, Generations, because it talks about this going on, talks about this, um, continuing the lines uh, the lines continuing through all of this darkness and light um, the fact that they exist simultaneously and will continue to do so My goodness and I could tell you about things we've been through some awful ones some wonderful but I know that the things that make us are more than that Our lives are more than the days in them. Our lives are our line, and we go on. I type that and I swear I can see Caroline standing in the green of Virginia, in the green of Africa, and I swear she makes no sound, but she nods her head and smiles. The generations of Caroline Donald, born in Africa in 1823, and Sam Lewis Sale, born in America in 1777, are Lucille, who had a son named Jeannie, who had a son named Samuel, who married Thelma Moore, and the blood became magic. And their daughter is Thelma Lucille, who married Fred Clifton, and the blood became whole. Hmm. And their children are Sidney, Frederica, Gillian, Alexia, four daughters, and Channing, Graham, two sons. And the line goes on. Don't you worry, mister. Don't you worry? Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and honestly, theoretically, now we're doing Q and A, but it seems like we don't have uh, <laughs> any questions at this moment. Um, I would like to open up for any. I'm reading some comments, Um, uh, uh, let's see, sorry, Tracy is saying, uh, how often these days I ask WWLS what would Lucille say? (laughs) (laughs) It's remarkable how many ways she continues to speak to us. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Someone asks Sydney, are you a poet? Good question <laughs> if, if, if the the definition of poet is are you a person who writes poetry on a consistent basis that I would not I would say I was not however, <laughs> I think that if the definition of poet is are you someone who walks in the world who is paying attention and who is intuitive and sensitive and empathetic and sees the connections between things I think I would say I was a poet I think I walk in the world that way. Um, yeah um if if that is your your definition uh there is a question uh do you see any influence of Lucille Clifton's works in today's black women poets works i would i would defer to you natasha
2: that's something that you see <laughs> absolutely i mean uh how could we not um, um yeah i mean I, I certainly just you know spent a great deal of, of time talking about, I think, how the influence of, of her work on me and, and particular poems. But I certainly think that that kind of um, fierceness, that kind of um, bravery, the, the what seems so crystalline and small, that contains such great depths and multitudes subversive in its uh, seeming accessibility. I think that that is um, a lesson that she's imparted to so many of us who are writing today.
0: Mm. Did you and mom ever read together? Do you have memories of her that you could share? (laughs)
2: Oh, well, I didn't get to read with her, um, but, um, I guess it was, I think it must have been 2002 because I'm thinking that that's, um, I'm looking for the inscription in my book, but, um, and yeah, it was, it was in October of 2002. She came, um, to Atlanta to give a reading, um, with, uh, Rita Dove and Stephen Dobbins and, um. I'm forgetting Billy Collins, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big, huge thing at Georgia Tech. And I think that um, she um, afterwards didn't want to go to the the big um, dinner. And so my husband and I got to, to take her back to the hotel <laughs> So we just got to ride with her and decided that we needed some food. So we all went to Popeyes and got like <laughs> a, a basket of something and uh, got to have a snack with her before um, she went to her hotel. But, you know, it was really um, just lovely getting to be with her. And I remember saying to her, I, "I, and I think you've heard me say this too, and you probably know why, I would call her Miss Lucille. Because Honoré Jeffers, you know, yes. who, who um, Miss Lucille selected Honoré's first book. So, you know, Honoré got ushered in, uh, as she did with Kevin Young. So there are a lot of people who owe, you know, so much to, to Miss Lucille. I, she, she was like, why do y'all call me that? <laughs> and, and I know that, you know, it started with Honoré, but I, I know that it's it, it was rooted in this such... Um, respect and deference that in in the south that's you know how we would refer to um, you know older black women who are who are our ancestors um, like a literary ancestor in our community and it was just about um, the the deep respect um. and so I continued to call her that even though I think she probably didn't like it. (laughs) That's funny.
0: Uh, another question. Uh, I see critics speak of Miss Clifton's work as transcending race, especially regarding her works that focus on the lives and experiences of women. Do you think she would agree?
2: What does that mean to transcend race? I mean, anytime somebody says that, it's kind of like, well, I'll put it another way, though this may not be the way um, that it was meant, um, but like somehow transcending um, blackness to get to something mm-hmm. human as if they're mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's any um, transcending race. Cause that would be like transcending humanity, mm-hmm. transcending being human. Um, the, the, the experience of race in America is shot through every moment of our lives. And so um, you may not always be thinking about it, but it's always thinking about you. Yes,
0: yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So the, the quick answer for me, do you think she would agree? I, I do not. And you said it far more eloquently than I, um, but for the reasons that you described, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, another question, where did your mothers find the motivation to cultivate joy in a world that seemed pitted against them with men, with race and everything else?
2: I get, you know th- that's also a hard question too because it just it just implies that uh all of the difficulties that one might have in life that we are somehow the sum of our troubles mm-hmm. as, oppo- as opposed to the sum of our resilience um mm-hmm. and our our power I mean my grandmother you know was born in uh 1916 in, in in Mississippi and 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 came of age as did my mother in the Jim Crow South I mean the, the things that you'd have to encounter just to survive are, you know, seemingly um, insurmountable. And yet, these were people who loved and laughed um, because more than what could harm them was their resilience. I think that's what that's what the end of come celebrate with me is about yes. every day. Something has tried to kill me and has failed. Yes. <laughs> that's worthy of celebration that says we're still here.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, anyone I think who knew my mother understood many of her experiences were devastating and, um, extraordinarily painful. However, She was made of joy. She was, joy was at the core of her being and it was at the core of her ability to to write poems even when they were difficult poems because she was going to celebrate and, and, and be honest about and authenticate every aspect of her life, every aspect of life, period. She was paying, as I mentioned, she was paying attention and she was not afraid to point to, 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 shine a light on whatever she saw but she was not made of that um she was just a person I mean and also mom was ridiculously funny I don't know if you had that experience with her as well but probably did if you went to Popeye's for the dinner that day um (laughs) you know so so joy was at the core of her being despite all those things that tried to kill her and failed um So they found the motivation. They didn't have to cultivate joy. That was part of their being. There's nothing that, yes, need cultivation. Mm -hmm. Um, Another question, I uh, I just think cutting greens is a tiny little poem that just keeps revealing itself to me the more I read. Natasha, could you talk about the not so simple simplicity of Lucille's work?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh goodness. You know, um, this is this is something that 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 I uh, learned from her poems, and I, I didn't quite say it like this in the reading, but um, I have always wanted my poems to be accessible. Um, I wanted my poems to be the kinds of poems that, you know, people who didn't read poetry or didn't think they liked poetry could read and understand and be moved by but that if they went back and looked closely they would find more and then each time more might be revealed that's exactly what you see in the poems of of Lucille Clifton the the deceptively uh accessible surface under which there is so much more. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, let's see, our last question. Speaking of uh, accessibility, what are your thoughts on accessibility in poetry? Specifically, whether or not that should be a concern when writing, should poets aim to be accessible? Should poets aim to be accessible and if so, to whom?
2: Well, I mean, if, if, if one's aim is to speak to as large an audience as possible, um, why not be accessible? Why not invite the reader in rather than, um, create a surface that looks, that makes the poem look as if it's smarter than you? Mm. Um, why not, in be write, write poems and invite people in. Um, you know, it's it, it certainly, it, it is an aim of mine, as I just said, to be accessible, to be inviting. I, I want to make the same invitation that I feel that Lucille Clifton's poems made for me, to enter them, to learn from them, and to answer.
0: Um, our last question, what are some of the songs Ms. Clifton enjoyed? I ask as someone who appreciates how intertwined poetry and music are or can be. And then we'll also ask you what some of your uh, uh, favorite songs are. Um, I can tell you who what singers mom liked. Mom was a huge fan of Ray Charles. Ray Charles was in the house um, almost every day. Um, but her tastes were eclectic and seemed to be sort of... Um, mood contingent, so Ray Charles, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, uh, she was also a huge fan of the soundtrack to Les Miserables, um, The Five Blind Boys uh, of uh, Alabama, is that The Five Blind Boys, yes, um, The Gospel at Colonus, uh, what else, Joe Cocker, uh, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Marvin Gaye, um, gosh, so it, it, it ran the gamut from R&B to rock and and back again, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So there was lots of music in the house and music and poetry were definitely intertwined in our family growing up. And how about you?
2: You know, I, I actually ended up writing a, a, a bit about um, songs and music in my um, memoir because, you know, that was so much about my mother and my relationship with my mother, you know, me remembering my mother dancing. Um, and so there's so many songs that sort of bring her back to me. Her favorite song um, was um, well, one of her favorite songs was The Temptations, Just My Imagination. And so anytime I hear that, I'm, I'm taken right back to um, my childhood with my mother. Um, when I was working on... Um, Uh, Native Guard in order to get myself in the right, you know, space to, you know, respond to why some people be mad at me sometimes, Mm -hmm. and to try to write that book, I would listen to Nina Simone's Mississippi (laughs) Goddamn. And so, you know, that still energizes me um, in tremendous ways. Um, You know, I, I um, my mother uh another favorite song of hers that um breaks my heart every time I hear it um is Donnie Hathaway's This Christmas mm. um, you know there's the the there's a there's a really a, a long list <laughs> it would be hard to even um name them but my my mother had a huge record collection um as you said Sydney. like your mom the it it just it 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 covered a range of things and she'd started collecting records um when she was a teenager because um my great uncle um, owned a nightclub and so Mm -hmm. he had a jukebox and she got to get all of the the records once he cycled them out so she started you know very early you know with everything from the blues um to i mean you know she, she died in 1985 and so that's why one of the last songs i remember her dancing to um was uh, morris day in the time the bird
0: oh my goodness mm-hmm. i do remember you talking about uh, this christmas in your memoir and mm-hmm. how it's equally beautiful and painful to hear so i mm-hmm. understand that as well Uh, it looks like we have we're at the top of the hour Um, there are a lot of comments but i don't think we're going to be able to get to them Uh, so i would throw back to uh kelly you are here
1: i'm here i'm here can you hear me yes okay (laughs) um i want to thank you sydney and natasha For a beautiful program this um, afternoon. Very touching and moving. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to the the feelings you have for your moms. Uh, I know I can, Um, but I want to thank everybody for joining us today. The Pratt would love to hear more about your experience. Please take a moment to answer the program survey after the program. Please click on the link before the Zoom room is closed. The survey will open in a separate browser when you click on it. So, for me and Tracy Diamond, who is running this program, I just want to say thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's thank been you. a deep joy. Thank you.
1: Take care, everybody. Bye.